Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello, one and all. Thanks for tuning into the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories, and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne and Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. I'm joined by what I describe as a legend in the world of diabetes today, Renza Shabilia, who has worked for Diabetes Australia for over six years, having been with Diabetes Victoria for more than a decade prior to that. She's a diabetes and health advocate, peer support and social media consultant, writer, media spokesperson, workshop presenter and facilitator. Renza is also a blogger, which I will get to very shortly. Before we do begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations, where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia, and pay my respects to all elders past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. Now, Renza, before I introduce you, and and we do get stuck into things, I would like to clarify one thing. I, I have known you for a long time, and you do a great job, but you are a blogger, the owner, editor, and writer. Just help me get this pronunciation right. Is it diabetogenic? Sure. Perfect. Oh, thank you very much. I have Perfect. been practicing. Good work. You've done a great job. It's great <laughs> to be you. here, Jack. How are you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. Um, you know, things are going well. We seem to touch wood at the moment have COVID under control and we're slowly uh, wheeling out the vaccine, which might be a good place to start because, correct me if I'm wrong, you've had your first jab. I have yesterday afternoon. I, I honestly have never been so excited to uh, roll up my sleeves and, and have an injection. Yes. Um, but I was really very thrilled that um, that phase 1B has started and all people with diabetes um, neatly fit into that phase and I managed to find an appointment and so I had my first of the two um, jabs yesterday afternoon. Well, that sounds exciting. For those of us who haven't had the jab, is it pretty much the same as, as any other immunisation or needle that we might have had over the journey or is it different? How, how does this one work? Yeah, look, it's really similar to your annual flu jab. You know, you you show up to wherever it is. I went to a GP clinic, um, had a quick chat with the doctor, um, and then I met with um, a nurse who actually did the jab, and then I sat in the waiting room for 15 minutes, and then I came home. Um, so very, very similar to any normal flu jab. And is it something that you need specifically to talk to your diabetes team about, or, or do we go straight to any GP, or, or what's the best way to do it? So we know that people with diabetes, it's certainly recommended that people with diabetes have the jab. If you've got any questions, speak to your doctor. That's, you know, a really good place to start. Um, There's no need, though, to call your endocrinologist if you have one or your diabetes educator unless you've got any, I guess, diabetes-specific questions. Your GP will probably be able to answer any of the general VAX questions that you might have. But, um, you know, I would say uh, get in as early as you possibly can. We need as many people as possible to be vaccinated um, and as soon as possible. So uh, now that people with diabetes are um, eligible, now is the time to start working out just how you can have that jab. Absolutely, Renza. I I couldn't uh, support what you've been saying anymore there about people getting as many people getting jabbed as possible. With COVID, it's been basically 12 months, a little bit over now that it really started impacting Mm -hmm. our lives here in Australia at least. And it's been 
for many of us, it's, you know, we've heard the word unprecedented about a billion oh my gosh. times yeah. in the last 12 months. But uh, firstly, how was it for you during COVID? And, and in touch wood, as the restrictions are lifting and, and we're getting back to some form of semblance of normal or certainly COVID normal, as we keep hearing, mm-hmm. how has that been for you? And how are things now that COVID uh, is all the restrictions are lifting? I mean, I feel that we are just so fortunate here in Australia. I have um, a number of friends who I know mostly through the diabetes world, I guess, living in the US and across Europe and and elsewhere. And our experience is very different. I mean, we did have, I'm in Melbourne. um, So yes, we had a really, uh, you know, really difficult lockdown last year that we all lived through. But I really, um, I guess, feel of the reasons that we did so well, apart from the fact that, you know, I only have admiration for the way that it's handled by the authorities. Um, But we had this real sense of community throughout it. And I think that that's something that perhaps was really, um, that, that was done differently in Australia. And from what I can see also New Zealand, it was about, you know, really keeping each other safe so that we would all be here at the end. And of course, you know, one person dying from COVID is too much and we need to do better to make sure that we don't have a situation where people are dying, obviously. Um, but that sense of, of really trying to support each other and doing things for the community. I, and I feel very fortunate that that was, I guess, you know, what I lived through here. Um, but, you know, my day-to-day life, I've always, you know, had a lot of flexibility in my job. So, you know, working from a laptop in the kitchen or in my study or sitting on the couch was not really all that unusual for me. I have done that before. The the main difference for me personally was that uh, I didn't get on an aeroplane for a long time and as somebody who spends so much time on planes and so much time travelling uh, to different countries and interstate for my job, that was the biggest change. But, you know, we've all become very, very familiar with a Zoom room and uh, I guess that that's, that became my new reality last year. Absolutely. Now, a couple of good segues uh to, to go into your career, but the one as well that you spoke about, that sense of community, and, and I feel that's something that we are very well versed to being in the world of diabetes, uh, that yeah. sense of community, because I feel that, you know, I say all the time, you could meet someone that you've never met before in your life, and, and if they've got diabetes or they're a carer for diabetes or they're impacted by diabetes in any stretch, you almost feel like your best friend the moment you meet them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I realized that very early on to COVID where it was, you know, we need to all now be online and that's how you stay connected to people is that you get online. And I thought, you know, 90% of the people that I know from the diabetes world are living in a very different time zone to me. I'm already connected to them online mostly. So, um, yeah. I didn't really feel that that sense of community that I've always really felt in the diabetes world changed at all for me. Um, maybe the topics of conversation changed and we were all very, you know, focused on, um, on, on COVID, but we still were, were using the same ways that we always had to communicate. You know, the diabetes online community is an online community and, um, it, it just, I think in, in some ways prepared us, I guess, for, for needing to, to move online so much. We've, we've been doing this for a very long time already. So, um, yeah, I think that, that that was, I guess, one thing that I didn't feel was such a change. Whereas, you know, if I'm looking at 
you know, kids not being at school anymore and that's where they're getting most of their social contact, that was a really big change for them, um, you know, to suddenly yeah. not have any of that and for everything to be on their phones, not just, you know, the usual stuff that they would be doing on their phones or on their laptops, you know, to keep in touch yeah. with their friends. Um, but, you know, to suddenly have have that as the only way was very, very different to what my personal experience has been with the online community in the world of diabetes. Talking about the online community now, I spoke at the top of the, the show when introducing you that you're a diabetes and health peer support and social media consultant, health writer, media spokesperson, workshop presenter and facilitator and blogger of Diabetogenic. Now, that all sounds great, Renza, but explain exactly what that is uh, to those of us who might not be familiar with it. It's really funny. My husband a couple of years ago um, said to people that he he finds it so difficult to explain what I what I do, and because I travel so much, and people are like, what does your wife do that that she travels so much? So he just started telling people that I'm I'm a spy in the diabetes world, and um, and I really love that because hey, why not? That that sounds like something that's a bit of fun and. Um, it's hard to sometimes explain what I do. But um, so my role at Diabetes Australia um, is is just such a I'm, – I'm so honoured and privileged that I get to do this because it means that it does – expose me and, and mean that I'm involved and engaged with people with diabetes from across the world um, through different research projects, through engagement projects, through, um, you know, liaising with um, other diabetes organisations. And um, so there's a big part of that. And I guess my role really is to, um, you know, focus on on what's going on in, in diabetes communities. And that's just, you know, really really important for diabetes organizations to have their finger on the pulse of what what are those things that people with diabetes are talking about what are those gaps in in learnings what can we learn from other places what can people learn from us and that's actually one of the joys is that I get to travel and to talk about the incredible work that we're doing here in Australia and I constantly you know am met with this just amazement at at what it is that we do here and and what it is that we do extraordinarily well. And we punch above our weight. So being able to stand up in front of a crowd and and talk about an initiative that we've run nationally and that we've been able to roll out and that we've had really incredible feedback and engagement with the community about is just delightful. Um, But I do get asked a lot, you know, how do you do that? So I spend a lot of time explaining, you know, what that engagement looks like and how we do it. Um, But I do write a lot about diabetes. I write, you know, my blog is my personal space where I write about my messy life with diabetes and try to make sense of it, which, you know, 23 years in, haven't worked that out yet, but um, <laughs> there's hope that there's still hope. Um, but I also write for other um, online and print publications more broadly about, you know, the diabetes space and, and the diabetes world and very much so from that lived experience perspective and talking a lot about why that is so important that we live to it, uh, that we listen to it and why it truly is the most important voice in the room. So I, I do get to climb up on my um, soapbox quite a lot to talk about about things that are super important to me and I guess to, you know, what I've heard to other people with diabetes as well. Going back to when you started this career path, um, you said your journey of 23 years living with diabetes. Were you working in the space prior to that or how did you find your way down this path of 
Um, becoming the queen of the diabetes world. Yeah, I'm absolutely not. And seriously, this isn't a monarchy anyway. But, um, uh, well, obviously, um, you know, my I went to university and studied music, which was the grounding, obviously, for a career in health advocacy. Um, and I say that obviously very tongue-in-cheek, but when I was studying at uni, I didn't have diabetes. I was diagnosed when I was 24 years old. So um, when I thought about what my life was going to be like and what I would be doing as a career, um, working for diabetes organisations or travelling the world talking about diabetes and writing about it, it really wasn't uh, in, in the plans, I guess. Um, but it happened after I was diagnosed, I um, had been doing a number of different things in, you know, in the music space and then a couple of other things as well. And then I had taken some time off and my husband and I had travelled a bit and I came back and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was actually doing some volunteer work at Diabetes Victoria and while I was doing some volunteer work there, they said we need somebody to run a type 1 diabetes program. Are you interested? And I applied and I got the job. It was a part-time job. I thought this, is, this sounds great. I'm going to do this probably for 6 or 12 months and then work out exactly what it is that I want to do. And uh, But this will be good. This will be a good thing for me to do. And that 6 to 12 months is now nearly 20 years later um, and I just I can't even imagine though I, like I just I had no idea at the time what that job was going to become and what the opportunities would be um, and how the diabetes landscape was going to change because it has changed so much and the way that that job started which was you know the very definition of tokenism was like oh we don't do anything for type one do can you just do something three days a week to it actually becoming something that we recognize as being a critical part of diabetes organizations is to have that lived experience front and center and going back to what you said nearly 20 years ago where social media influencing or, or whatever it might be, online communities weren't quite as big as they are now. You said it was a type one program to begin yep. with. How did that evolve from running a type one program into becoming more social media or, or online presence-based? So it's really interesting because back then there was an online diabetes community for people with type 1 diabetes that was run out of Australia. It was called Reality Check. It was extraordinarily active. It was a thing. People would pose questions. There'd be really great discussion. People would put in their ideas. There'd be disagreements. There'd be, you know, firm agreements. There would be. It was the space where people with diabetes could go to be themselves there was no hierarchy in terms of needing to be concerned about what a health professional might say. So that, you know, it was an old school forum that, you know, we don't, we still see them here and there, but we don't really see them in that format much anymore. But it was, you know, probably about, I guess, 12 years ago that I started to see that there was really this shift to a broader and more accessible, I guess, online community. And it did happen with the advent of Facebook and with Twitter and with other online platforms that suddenly you could very easily identify people who were living in that same space that you were. You know, the beautiful hashtag of Twitter meant that you could really very easily find people who were living with diabetes and 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 learn from them and chat with them and, and um, you know, connect with them. So it kind of happened really when I... Actually, I, you know, I, I was reading blogs, you know, because I'm always hungry to learn from other people. And I mean, that had actually started long before that, though. I, I actually wrote an online blog 
while I was pregnant with my daughter and she's 16 now. So, um, you know, when we, when we talk about all oh, online communities are new, that's a load of rubbish. They're not new. They've been around for a very long time. So when people get a bit nervous about what, it, what is it that you're talking about? These are unmoderated and, and what are you talking about? It's like, we're just talking about life. We're just talking about life with diabetes in exactly the same way that people would if they were sitting around a, a kitchen table and, and, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing to be afraid of. But about 11 years ago, I started getting on Twitter and I saw that there were these things called tweet chats and there was one that used the hashtag DSMA, which is Diabetes Social Media Advocacy, that's run by this incredible woman out of the US called Sharice Shockley, who is the definition of diabetes community. She's, you know, the person who I always point to when I think about people who just want to welcome people into this world. And that was really how I guess I started to connect and um, that I realised that we're doing so much great stuff in Australia, but there's so much more that I wanted to learn. So that, I guess, was was how it all started. And that was about 11 or 12 years ago. And now a decade on, or a bit more than a decade on, um, diabetes advocacy has, has led to you speaking at the World Health Organization informal consultation on diabetes. And, and you've spoken at many, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, impressive events and, and things like that. What exactly is advocacy? We hear the word, but what exactly do you consider your job to be in diabetes advocacy? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I think it's a word that we throw around a lot, but what does it mean? And it means different things to different people. So I guess for me, my advocacy efforts have always been about how to improve life with diabetes for the diabetes community. Um, and that's why I'm very comfortable using the term advocate and using the term advocacy because I feel that it absolutely is something that I am proud to be part of and proud to do. I'm not comfortable with the term influencing an influencer because I sort of feel that in my mind, and this is just my own personal opinion, but in my mind that seems to be more about building an individual brand. I will say I don't think that there's anything wrong with building a brand. We all do it. I mean, you know, we all want to be, you know, doing stuff and and for people to know us and for people to come to us and, and that's absolutely fine. But really, I guess the driving force behind what I've done is how, how in general can life be better for people with diabetes? And it's something that I guess I take great pains when I am talking, um, when I'm invited to speak or when I'm writing about things is I speak to self. I can only speak to my own experiences and my experiences are one of extraordinary privilege. Um, and I think that it would be very remiss of me if I didn't identify that because when I stand up and I talk about diabetes, I talk about it from a position of a white woman who lives in a, a, a you know a busy city who has very easy access to a health professional. English is my first language. I'm very health literate. Um, I can afford the care that I need if it's not funded. Um, I have an incredible support network around me. I understand how the health system works. It's not, you know, my, my challenges are just as legitimate as everybody else's, but they're not the challenges that other people who may not have that privilege experience. Um, so I'm, I take, you know, I'm a great pains to explain that because really when people hear me, yes, they will hear the challenges that I experience, but they won't hear about the experiences that other and the challenges that I experience that can be really, really dire, like people not being able to afford insulin, which is something that happens 
around the world, not being able to pay for technologies that are not funded, not being able to pick up the phone and ring a doctor and know that they will answer. And and I have that. And I just feel that, um, you know, it's all very well when we have people standing up and speaking or we have committees of people, but we really need to be doing better at hearing other voices. So that's also been a very big part, I guess, of my advocacy is elevating the voices that we don't hear as much. And we really should be hearing from a lot more. Speaking up for the little guy, so to speak, Renza. Well, I think that I need to speak up for people. It, it's about making sure that there is a space for other people to be able to speak as well. So I'm, I'm not interested in speaking for somebody. You know, I, this is the story I tell about this because, and it's not the only time that this has happened, but a couple of years ago I had a call and somebody said, oh, we're, we're setting up a, an advisory board and, and we need a consumer on it. I don't like the word consumer. Um, could you do that? And I said, oh, okay, can you tell me a bit about the, the project? Oh, the project is um, we're looking at um, men with type 2 diabetes who are diagnosed in their 50s living with erectile dysfunction. And I said, I literally don't tick one of those boxes. How about you find a bloke with type 2 diabetes in his 50s who's experiencing, experiencing erectile dysfunction to be the person on that committee for you? And they yeah. said, but, but you're an advocate. You know what you're talking about. You can speak for those people. Uh, no, I can't. I can't speak to those people. I can't speak for people who have not had the same experience as me. Um, and I never, ever claim to, but do a better job of finding those people because they're out there. And when we hear about that term, you know, oh, hard to reach people, they're not hard to reach. People are not hard to reach. It's that they are not by the, you know, traditional, um, I guess, techniques that you've used all the time to reach people that only reaches a certain type of person. So, um, you know, it's, it's about turning, I guess, that responsibility back and saying, hey, you need to do better when you're putting together committees or when you're putting together a panel or when you're putting together a speaker's um, group or, um, you know, whatever it is, do better and find more people that, that are more representative of different groups. Absolutely. Now, when you are speaking to people with diabetes or people impacted by diabetes, now, whether it be online or face-to-face, what are the most common issues that you come across with, with these people? Um, and then I suppose further to that, um, what words of advice can you give to people living with or affected by diabetes who are looking at becoming advocates and, and stepping into a similar space as yourself? Yeah. Well, let's start with, you know, what are those issues that are really, um, really you know, I guess common that people are talking about? Everybody's diabetes life is going to be different. So there are always going to be certain things, obviously, that impact people more and not everybody who works in the advocacy space, whether it be in a volunteer capacity or, or as a job, is going to necessarily find the same things a priority. But there certainly are some things, I guess, that, um, that do seem to really resonate and they are things like um, the impacts of mental health when it comes to diabetes and, and needing to be more open in the way that we speak about um, mental health and diabetes. Um, I guess because I've written a lot about women's health, I do get a lot of women with diabetes wanting to talk to me about um, different issues that are specific women living with diabetes. So that might be around sexual function and sexual health. Um, and so that's become something that, you know, increasingly in recent years, I guess, people have felt more comfortable perhaps talking about. Um, 
also one of the things that I'm very passionate about and I write about a lot, so that means that people want to talk to me about it a lot, is language and the language that we use around diabetes and um, and health in general and how we can use that to build people up rather than stigmatise and judge people living with diabetes. Another big thing is the value and importance of peer support, um, the importance of that lived experience being vocal and loud and available in any conversation to do with diabetes. I live by the philosophy of nothing about us without us. So, uh, you know, these are the sorts of things that I, I certainly do get asked to speak about. And access. Access is always a priority because people want to know that they can get their hands on the best treatment for them, whether that be a technology, a drug, or the healthcare that they need, an education program, whatever it is, people want access. They want to know how they can they can do that. So there's not kind of one or two things it's it's a really big suite of different issues that are important to people and they change you know somebody might be really 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 interested and need information and want to do some advocacy on issue a because that's really relevant to them right now Mm -hmm. and then in a couple of years time issue b becomes you know something that's really central to them and that's fine that's absolutely great that we've got people talking about lots of different things and advocating for lots of different things as well Certainly a lot of different things going on and you can talk about that just uh, with yourself individually, let alone in in the entire community. You referenced technologies um, and different diabetes technologies that you talk about and obviously there's been so many changes in that space. Now, I personally am a big believer in doing what works for you and um, there clearly is no one correct uniform way. It's about Mm -hmm. working with your diabetes care management team and with whatever the best management uh, is for yourself. But personally, which diabetes technologies do you use and what has been your journey along the last you know, 20, 25 years since you've been diagnosed and, and where that started and where it's at now. Yeah, well, you and I come from a very similar belief system there, Jack. I totally believe in the you do you. There is no one size fits all and people need to have, you know, everything that's available, um, you know, they need to know about that, I believe, and then choose what works best for them. So that's that's yeah. where I start. There is no, you know, I think everybody loves to would love to be able to pigeonhole people with diabetes and say, this is the best thing, this is what you do, off you go. Doesn't work like that. Um, me personally, I started using an insulin pump 20 years ago and uh, I'd only had diabetes like for three, nearly three years at the time. And when people talk to me and say, why did you start on a pump? I'm going to be really honest and say it was because I wanted to sleep in on the weekends. That's really why I wanted to do it because back then the insulins were different, had to eat early in the morning, otherwise I'd end up having a hypo or going high, whatever it was, I can't even remember what it was now. And I wanted to be able to sleep in. I Sleeping in was the most important thing to me <laughs> at that point in time on a weekend, <laughs> right? Yeah. And we didn't have Daphne and we didn't have insulin, um, insulins that, you know, you didn't need to eat at a certain time. And so um, I started on an insulin pump and I've been pumping now for 20 years. Um, I used CGM. I trialed it when it first came into Australia and really it took me a very long time to understand why using a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, you know, how I could get it to work for me. But I did and now it's probably in my mind, you know, the most important um, device I guess that, that I think, you know, in terms of really being able to track what's going on with, it, with my diabetes. Three and a half years ago I went to the somewhat what people seem to think is scary, but I'm just so grateful for it, world of DIY, so do-it-yourself artificial pancreas systems, which 
was, you know, something that I'd been interested in for quite some time. But basically, I using using existing technologies, I then was able to access some open source code to build an app that automates my insulin delivery. So this is really similar to there are now commercial systems available that do the same sort of thing, but I have chosen to continue using a DIY system. And that for me has been the biggest and best and most significant change in my diabetes management because every time something new comes out in the diabetes world, there's a massive media, it's all exciting, there's beautiful shiny brochures, there are people with diabetes looking happy and rolling down hills in autumn, I don't know. Like, you know, it's the marketing machine goes into overdrive and on the box it promises to change your life with diabetes. And you know what? It probably does a little bit but it also adds different challenges, you know, being attached to a pump constantly or alarms on a CGM. But this actually delivered what it promised to without any downsides. So it promised to reduce the burden of diabetes. I have never felt as little burden with diabetes as I have in the last three and a half years since I've been using this. And, um, again, privilege all the way because I'm having to fund uh, my CGM myself. I'm not eligible for funding and I'm very fortunate to have access to the technology and to have been able to build this. But... I finally have something that is working for me the way that I need it to, not me having to sort of adjust my life around it. And I feel very fortunate, but it's certainly it's not going to be the right thing for everybody. But for me, at yep. this point in my life, it's absolute, absolutely the right thing. No, I, I, again, I couldn't echo that anymore. It's, I love hearing what people are doing and, and potentially Same. looking at, at testing them out and, and trying to improve what I'm doing and how I do it personally. But definitely doesn't, uh, as you said, one size fits all doesn't work. I'm six foot seven, Renza, so I've never believed in one size fits all. <laughs> I assure you of that. Um, but it, it is funny you mentioned the marketing machine that goes into overdrive because so often – I hear from people who don't have diabetes and they ask me, oh, why aren't you using this? I saw this great ad the other day. I think it's real interest, but they end up telling you what you should be doing more than people who Mm -hmm. have diabetes or the health professionals, I think. Uh, We're coming to the end of it. I've got two final questions I want to ask you about. One, I suppose, uh, a personal reflection and one on a a broader reflection. Um, The first one personally, um, in your 20-year career, um, in diabetes and, and you've done so many great things but what's been your proudest moment or your greatest moment of recognition or your biggest achievement in the world of diabetes thus far you know that's that is so hard to answer but I guess um, only only because I've just been so lucky to have done so much but I guess it's seeing more and more that people with diabetes have a meaningful place in diabetes discussions um, And I guess that for me, a big part of that has to be, you know, I need to recognize where that came from. And it came probably about 18 years ago when I was working at Diabetes Victoria and we had a new CEO CEO came in and it was one of the first meetings that I had with him. And um, he looked around the room and and everybody said what they did. and, And he said, we've got one person with diabetes in this room and we're talking about diabetes that needs to change. If there are any discussions about diabetes, there must be people with diabetes in the room at all times. And that was a really big shift. 
um, it was a really, really big shift. And that person, of course, is the CEO of Diabetes Australia, Greg Johnson, um, now, but he was CEO at Diabetes Victoria. And he's had this very firm belief in ensuring that that voice is heard and that there is space for people. So I think it's probably having that now at a national level that we, we just have never had before is really critical. And I, I should also point out that's not always my voice. My voice is really boring. It's not always my voice. We're hearing from more and more people. We're listening more and more. So I think that that's probably, you know, one of the, the greatest and, and biggest, I guess, changes that, um, that we've seen and that I'm super, super proud of. The second question is we're now into the 100th year since insulin was discovered, which is a pretty cool thing. It's scary to think that, you know, if we were born 100 years prior, we we most likely wouldn't be around at this point in time, Renza. So what does it mean for you, the 100th year anniversary of insulin, if, if that's what you want to call it? Yeah, we should absolutely be celebrating this year and, you know, I pay thanks to Banting and Best every day of my life. Every time I get, grab a vial of insulin out of my radar. But you know what? With all of the celebration, because you just said there, Jack, that if we'd been born a hundred years ago, diabetes was a was a death sentence. But we need to remember that there are still places in the world where the outcomes are not really all that much better than they were 100 years ago. So when we look at a kid diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in sub-Saharan Africa, their life expectancy isn't much more than 12 months. So you bet we should be celebrating. We absolutely should be celebrating the fact that for 100 years, people with diabetes have had a drug that can help keep us alive. It's not a cure, but it absolutely you know, means that, it, that we will stay alive. Um, but, hey, that's not something that we can take for granted and not something that we know is available everywhere. So I really think that uh, amongst the celebrations we should be looking at supporting organisations that are really trying to improve the lives of people with diabetes who are not living in places like Australia where we are just so, so fortunate in so many ways to be able to access insulin easily easily and i think that that's probably a good focus for this 100 year anniversary um as much as the celebrations very very well said renza very well said indeed i could continue talk all day and and ask you a bazillion questions and i'm sure that you're so passionate about it and you have so many passion points that you probably could talk all day but uh, (laughs) we are running out of time is there anything you did want to leave us with or uh or you're happy to wrap it up there renza I'm just going to say this, and I'm saying this to people living with diabetes, is stop being hard on yourselves. We are so hard on ourselves. And um, one of the things that I've really been trying to focus on is being kinder to myself because I know that some of the ways that I think about myself and my own diabetes, I would be very angry if a, you know, a good mate with diabetes was talking that way about themselves. So, you know, I really think that... Um, under, you know, diabetes is so hard and it it sucks. It really does. So... Being a little bit kinder to ourselves and it's diabetes is really hard and acknowledging that and acknowledging that we're generally doing a really great job is super important. So let's just be a little bit nicer to ourselves, I reckon. Oh, geez, Renza, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm more than happy to uh, finish it there. I really appreciate you making the time to chat, Renza. You are a very busy woman with uh, so many things going on. You're doing some great, so many great things in the world of isn't Really appreciate not only your time in chatting, but all of the work you're doing. So Renza Shabilia of Diabetogenic, thank you for joining us here on Living Well with Diabetes. Thank you so much, Jack. It's been great to be here. 
Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcast at diabetesvic.org.au. Or, of course, all the information you'll need is on the website, diabetesvic.org.au.